well, 12 months ago on the On The Way podcast, I sat on a, uh, a couch in Belfast looking over the grey skies of Northern Ireland, having a conversation with author, uh, philosopher and existential specialist Pete Rollins about the longing inside all of us for home. And uh, 12 months on here, uh, on the morning of New Year's Eve 2023, uh, I find myself not on the couch, maybe a few metres over to the right of the couch, sitting at the table in that same Belfast apartment with Pete Rollins once more. You've graduated to the table. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It's a big deal. I don't know what's what's above the table. Is that the kitchen bench? Is that the... My bedroom, yeah. but I'll say no more. <clears throat> that's where the magic happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's so exciting to be able to uh, to share another conversation uh, a year on from from that great chat we had about home, which I think was... Just after Boxing Day last year, so it is almost a year to yeah, the day. That's and crazy. Since uh, since I got into your apartment, we've been just comparing notes about how quickly the years pass. Which I guess at this time, as as people maybe are listening to this in the first few weeks of January, there is a bizarre dizziness that comes to to the the passing of time. It, I don't know. It feels like we never really get to properly zoom out, step back, and go. Hang on a second. This thing is crazy. How are we suddenly in twenty twenty four? How did that happen? There's a beautiful saying, uh, the days are long and the years are short. Yes. And that's what it feels like, because every day can feel quite long, and then suddenly a decade has passed. Whoa. (laughs) And the older you get, because I'm older now, I'm 50 now, and uh, it feels like time goes more and more quickly, because I suppose you've been around longer, so time seems to speed up. Well, that's terrifying, but I look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I do know what you mean. When you're seven or eight, the next Christmas feels so far away. Yeah, because you've only been around for seven yes. years, so a whole year is one seventh of your life again. You know, yeah. whereas when you've been around the block <laughs> fifty times, that's only one fiftieth yeah. of your existence. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- this this probably is a good introduction in some ways to what I wanted to talk with you mm. about because, as I mentioned, it is um, the morning of New Year's Eve here, mm. the thirty first of December, twenty twenty three. Very quiet. You were mentioning yes. like we're looking out at the city, and it's yeah. just. So deadly quiet. I found one cafe that was open that did me yeah. a good coffee and some sort of mushrooms on toast breakfast. That was good stuff. Oh, I bet you were at Neighbourhood. I think I might have been. Oh, yeah, it's a great spot. <laughs> ah, yeah, it's very, very good. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, the, you know, the one cafe that would be open in the area. Yeah, yeah. New Year's Eve. Nothing right. else is yet. But um, I, I wanted to share a conversation today um, that, that will go up hopefully New Year's Day so people can hear this in the first few weeks of the new year. Because this time of year is so caught up in this idea of hope. This hope that maybe next year, the year that's coming, will in some way hold the secret I've been waiting for. Maybe the partner will come along. Maybe we'll fall pregnant. Maybe I'll get the job. We'll move. The illness will be cured. Whatever it might be, I think so often we we can sense that there is something lacking from our lives. We have an idea of what would fill that lack. And then we just project that onto onto the next year. And New Year's Eve is such a, a chronic time for this. It's almost where the... I think the the hope of change is at its most prevalent. We start to imagine maybe all of this has just been the warm-up and now we're entering the real game. This next year is going to hold all the secrets I've been waiting for. And I was thinking about this uh, on my, my flight over here on how I think I was maybe 15 or 16 when I first it first really hit me that things didn't seem to be actually ever summing themselves up like I kept thinking they were going to. And now at 30, that has just continued and continued and continued. And yet we still fall into this, this I don't, know, I want to, don't want to say trap of hope, but this trap of believing that this big somehow salvation is just around the corner. So I thought hope would be a wonderful um, thing to, to look at today. Wait, what do you think of, when, when you uh, think about hope, where does your mind go immediately? Yeah, so I mean, for me, the neo-religious promise 
is always uh, connected to giving us what we feel we've lost or what we feel we lack. So mm-hmm. either uh, you've had some, uh, maybe historically there was a golden age that we want to get back, or in your own personal life, there's a relationship that you want to get back, or maybe it's your childhood that you want to relive. And so you're looking to the future to try to get something back that you feel you lost, or you feel you never had it. And there's a future utopia that is yet to come. And we want that. And for me, kind of neo-religion, you know, because I call it neo-religion in a way because it it transcends traditional religions. Uh, Anyone who offers, we can give you this object, this thing that will make you whole and complete, that will satisfy you, that will uh, take away your longing and yearning desire, Mm -hmm. um, is a promise that is incredibly effective. And we see it in all sorts of forms today and we can talk about that but it's it's almost like hard to take an example because it's everywhere it's in every magazine every instagram post it's like everywhere is this this longing and um this suppose as you say new year's is when it's at its most palpable Mm. um so one form of hope is the hope of wholeness and completeness and as we'll probably talk about i think that form of hope um can be very, very destructive and very, very damaging. And uh, there might be a more, a richer form of hope that we can kind of begin to understand, but first we're going to have to burst the bubble of this one. Yes, I like that. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll stick with us. If, if the next 15 or 20 minutes gets a bit nihilistic and depressing, mm-hmm. the, the deeper, richer form of hope will lie on the other side of that. <laughs> or so. it'll get even darker. There's a, <laughs> I might argue that... That in order to get to the light, you have to turn depression up to 11. So it might get right. very dark by the end, but okay. there's a reason for that. <laughs> Can you tell me, tell me a bit more about that? What do you mean you have to turn depression up to 11 to get to the light? Yeah, so can we... I, I'd love to make a distinction between three... I'm going to make them all beginning with D. To sure. me, you know, like that's the three points all beginning with the same letter. Very evangelical Christian. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about demand, desire and drive. Sure. And if if maybe if we go through those briefly, yes. I can come to an answer of why there's something about embracing a lack and a lack of fulfillment and uh, suffering and difficulty that is itself powerful. Mm. Um, but I think we can get to that by going through these three levels. So sure. how does that yes. sound? Oh, yeah. Jump in. Uh, jump I'm in. ready for Pastor Pete. <laughs> Pastor Pete. Okay, everybody. <laughs> the, the Madonna microphone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think I'll make money from this sermon, but we'll try. It won't get me what, private jets or anything. What you need is someone on the keyboard behind you just playing some soft notes at the end of the sermon. Yes. Just slowly building to the offering, but we'll see. Well, here, I want the song. Instead of I once was blind and now I can see was lost and now I'm fine. I want, I once could see and now I'm blind. <laughs> was fine, but now I'm lost. So that's going to be the altar call if you can play that. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Good. We'll just get the musicians working on yeah. that in the background. Well, I'm saying the good news is you don't have the answer and life is shit. There, there you go. <laughs> that's it. Come to the front. Okay. So now I have to justify why that is the church you want to go to. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if, I, if you start with demand, and, and these three are intimately interlinked. So you can't really separate them very neatly, but we can theoretically, and that that will be helpful. Mm. Demand is the easiest. You can think of demand uh, as the infant makes demands. Whenever an infant is born, 
there is immediate demands for the satisfaction of hunger, sure. for warmth, for sleep, to be winded, right? For all of these things that an infant requires. And there's no sense in which the infant is thinking about what they want or lying about what they want or can articulate what they want. Um, I mean, I guess the closest we can get to feeling like that is if you take a big bunch of 5-MeO DMT, you probably get back a little bit to that experience of being an infant, right? Sure. Where, where there's no self, there's the kind of no inside, outside. So all, all the infant has is this explosion of feelings and it, and it demands, it calls out and the parents have to respond to the demand. So it's super primal. Super primal, yeah. super primal. Yeah, it's like, so there's hunger, there's thirst, there's warmth, there's cold, there's these feelings, there's sickness. It's just, but there's no, no, no signifiers for that. There's just explosions of feeling. Mm. And the parent responds always inadequately. I mean, not always, but like there's always an inadequacy of some kind. Like sometimes you'll think, oh, my child is hungry when they're really tired or they're whatever, or sure. you won't be there when they're crying, you're next door. So um, you can never immediately respond to the needs of the infant. Mm. As an aside, if you ever could, you would create uh, the, uh, the most psychotic individual you could ever imagine. Like if you could imagine an AI that could immediately <laughs> respond completely accurately to the infant's every need by reading its biometrics, right? Yes, yeah. Um, the infant would never experience any form of lack, any form of loss. There would be no birth of signification of language. I mean, it would be, so, so it's, it's actually important for the parent to yeah, get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's needed. It's not just a necessary evil. It's like, no, no, no. You, it, the infant begins to develop desire precisely because you, know, you cannot adequately hit every need. Yes. But so there's demand. Demand is hunger drink whatever sure the second one is a bit more difficult and it's desire desire is if demand is for an object desire is for what makes the object desirable so here we have to make a distinction between object of desire what you desire and the object cause of desire what makes it desirable now in a nutshell i won't say too much about this but jump in mm. anytime you want is what makes something desirable for us as adults as we become subjects is and at first this is hard to see but is we we kind of desire what other people desire yeah and yeah, yeah so we've what, had james ellison the Gerardian scholar oh, on yes. the podcast a few times yes. talking about oh perfect mimetic desire mimetic yeah, desire because yeah. the best person yes. I, one of the best people on mimetic desire desire is, is rennie Girard, right yes so um and so anybody who knows that the, the idea is that the infant and the child begins to look at what the parent looks at. So there's a certain age where they look at the parent and then there's a certain age where it's called joint attention where they look at where the parent is looking. Sure. And if the and where the parent's gaze alights, they take an interest in what that alights upon. And you know, the most precious material in the world is the desire of the ones we desire. That's mm. what we want the desire. So even if you go for coffee, we we're just talking about coffee shops there, like you know, you don't just want a coffee to sate your thirst. In fact, it's a terrible thing to sate your thirst. <laughs> Why would you do it? Like, it's, um, there was once an advert for Sprite and it, it, it was an advert that tried to be super honest. And the whole thing was like, Sprite won't make you cooler, won't make you sexier, won't make you this, won't make you that. And it, and it was like, oh, brilliant. So they're kind of playing on the thing that all adverts are trying to say, you buy this car and it'll yes. make you desirable. So Sprite was like, it won't do any of that. 
but it will quench your thirst. And you go, no, it won't quench your thirst. It's a diuretic. It, literally, if you want to quench your thirst, it won't. You know, it's, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's hiding a lie within it. And of course, the whole purpose of that advert is to make the person who drinks Sprite think that, oh, I'm, I want to be the type of person who isn't influenced by adverts, right? Yeah, I, so even yeah. that, so even if you, Todd McGowan uses this example where even if you go into, like if you live in a city now, you can't buy a pair of jeans, without buying something else, which means how, what these genes signify. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, cool, I'm casual, I'm this or that. And even if you go into a cheap shop and buy a cheap pair of jeans, you're signifying I'm the kind of person who's yeah. very pragmatic and doesn't <laughs> fall for all that stuff, right? So you can't get away from yeah, it. Yeah. You're never just buying the jeans. There's also something else in the jeans, and that's called Object A. Yes, um, there's, there's no way to escape the game. No way to escape yeah. the game because because desire is fundamental to subjectivity. Mm. And now, and you know, in terms of autism, either pathologically or structurally, or just is. But uh, you find someone who's very autistic. Um, there's a certain sense in which they are not woven into you know the desire of the other, right? Um, so desire that's and whenever you're working with autism you're you're trying to find ways to connect the person into the mm -hmm. desirous environment the field of desire right so we're in the field of desire uh whether you're buying a coffee or not so if yes. demand yeah if demand is object then desire is kind of for this you can call it a lost object because we're always wanting something that will kind of give us make us desirable to the other and especially our parents or those early things all of our fantasies basically tell us how we think we're desirable to the other mm. if you know our desires don't tell you what you desire they tell you what you think the other desires of you that's why you can have masochistic desires etc etc because you're desiring what you think the other desires of you and you, and you desire that desire <clears throat> and there is something inherently in desire tied into not having into into lack mm. into I mean, it's, I know this is Esther Perel's big question she asks about marriage is, uh, she says the way we solve marriage in the West is figuring out how to desire what we already have. Ah, yes, um, yes. Which is a, a really, it sounds simple when you think about it, but when you actually break desire down, I mean, very few people woke up today desiring their life exactly as it currently is. In yes. some way, desire is tied into something being absent, something not being there. Exactly. And the two main forms of that, which are called hysteria and obsession, are either you do the way you start to desire and these aren't these aren't necessarily healthy ways of doing it um the way you desire what you have is either by it being under threat of being taken away or by some sort of impossibility so in hysteria you desire what is under threat so that's jealousy you, so you maintain. So people think, "Oh, I'm jealous because I love," but often they love because they're jealous. Jealousy ah. is the mechanism that's right. required <laughs> yes. to keep their desire alive. Uh, you see this so often, potentially in couples, for example, oh, yeah. where it, it has gone lifeless for a little while, the relationship, but then one suspects the other might have a you know a crush on someone at work, or there could be some affair going on, and then suddenly their desire for that partner sparks up again because they're oh, yeah. about to lose them. And they're jumping into bed together. I had had that with some people I know who it was exactly like this a kind of affair that they hated each other, <laughs> and the woman really hated the man for what he'd done, but was so desirous of him they were they were <laughs> they were right back there again. So yes, yes jealousy and oh, and in that example. 
uh, impossibility was his thing and that he he was his desire was fueled by an impossible person a person they couldn't have right um and that impossibility generated desire so you can have impossibility within your relationship where you find ways where uh i mean people do this in a healthy way like a child in, brings impossibility like in movies you'll often see just as the the couple are about to have sex the child runs in the door and and you know then they go oh my we can't you know we've got the kid N- not realizing that it's actually the impossibility that generates the desire for the sex right, right. so so actually sure. the child's the impossibility generates so these are all ways in which we have loss as you exactly say and kind of embedded within desire yes um so that's that's kind of how desire in a in a nutshell kind of functions mm. um oh another thing about what you said is if you you know the reason why op- what's called object a which is the thing in the object that makes it desirable that is not a thing um i actually have a, <laughs> have a story i think uh that uh fits with this if you don't mind oh, can I please. <laughs> yeah it's this guy see if I can remember it this guy Seamus who um goes into a cake shop in Belfast yep. yeah and um he's in the shop and he goes listen guys would love a, a chocolate cake and I go yeah absolutely and could you put the letter a on the top of it and they go yep no problems come back in two days chocolate cake letter a on the top of it so two days later Seamus goes into the coffee shop or into the cake shop and it's a coffee shop as well and he sits there has a coffee says oh do you get the cake I said, yeah, absolutely. Bring out the cake. And Seamus's face drops. And he says, oh. And I said, what's wrong? He said, well, it's perfect. It looks great. The chocolate looks amazing. But I should have said this. Totally my fault. Totally my fault. But you, you did a capital A. I wanted a small, a lowercase A. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you should have said. I said, I should have written it down. I should have written it. I'm really sorry. The guy's like, listen, okay. Okay, come back tomorrow. I'll, I'll have it sorted for you. So day goes past, James comes in, goes up, and they bring out the chocolate cake. And it's a small letter A. The guy's smiling, but Seamus, his face just is downcast, and he's like, I'm really embarrassed, but it's really important, I'm really sorry. But I, I, I kind of meant it's italicized. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't want it like straight, I wanted it like, you know, like a, you know, yeah, yeah, it's italicized day. And the guy's like, are you taking the piss? And he's like, I'm not taking the piss. It's just important. Like, can you do it for me? It's really important. And the guy goes, okay, listen, I'll do it. But you're going to take this cake tomorrow, right? Seamus, I promise. So the next day, Seamus comes in. And the guy, raging, right, pulls out the cake, puts it on the the shelf, looks at Seamus, and he's expecting the worst. But big smile on Seamus' face. He says, mate, you've really gone over and above here. He says, that's perfect. I just want a small italicized A in the top of the cake. It's exactly what I needed. The guy goes, thank goodness. He says, okay, I'll just, I'll box it up and you can take it. And Seamus is like, oh, no, no. He says, it's fine. Just give me a spoon and I'll eat it here. <laughs> so um, that's object A. <laughs> That's object. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. the barely perceptible thing that makes the thing desirable, right? Yes, <laughs> so yeah, weirdly, yeah. you know, and and what's even more interesting, it's like it's not in the object at all, really. Yeah. But but without it, so you can, for example, desire a person because they're impossible. 
it's actually the impossibility that makes them desirous. It's not even a thing. Mm. The impossibility is not a thing. And as soon as you get rid of the impossibility and you have the person you desire, you no longer desire them. Like you needed the object A, you needed the impossibility in order for your desire to be fueled. Oh, yeah, and, and this was, I think this is maybe the first thing of yours that I, I came across, Pete, um, was the idea that prohibition fuels desire, mm. which is such a game-changing insight into how humans function. Yes. Um, a bit of a terrifying insight into how humans function, to be honest, because I, I still think, and, and I, um, I think this is one of the big dilemmas with this, there is a sense in which our desire feels like our own it feels so if you want to know what feels the most me thing on the planet it's what i desire yes that feels the deepest truth of who i am and yet this suggests that that isn't the case at all that desire is sort of this contagion yes that instead i've just caught <laughs> yes it's a, a contagion's a great term yeah yes, yes. yeah and yeah. so actually there's no true essence of dom fay and what i desire yes that's just sort of the the i don't know the rivers flowing around me that i get caught up in every now and then and and actually, the, the truth of me, if there is a truth of me, and that's a whole different yeah. story, but, but is found in, in maybe the lack of the not having the desire. Exactly. And, the, and this, is, this is why every new relationship, you, you're born again. I love this phrase, born again, because often the, 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 log, the common sense of love is that when you meet somebody, it's like, oh, you helped me discover an authentic dimension of myself that I didn't know I had right mm. that's the feeling it's like oh you discovered something in me that that w that was there all along that was behind my back yes and yeah. that's how it feels but I think it's actually more powerful when you kind of begin to understand through the the work of mimetic desire that no no the person didn't so much discover a desire within you that was dormant but they birthed a desire within you. They, mm. they gifted you a desire. So you were never into French film before you met that girl, right? <laughs> you know, um, and maybe you still aren't, you know, you just pretend you are. But sometimes, you know, yeah. th their desire kind of sparks in you a desire. And so in a way you're born again, you become somebody new. And so the beautiful thing is in life, we can be new people. In fact, this is the promise of, and it's a, it's a very complex promise. And sometimes I don't even believe it but this is the salvatory promise of something like psychoanalysis is that that you can short circuit your current mode of being and restart you can be born again this yes. is, so you're fundamental so if, if for example and this will get us to drive which is the most interesting one but i'll i'll jump ahead for a second and go if you have a thing where you repeat a tragedy, you repeat a type of loss in your relationships, and you just always do it. No matter how much you think you're not going to do it, you seem to repeat some, you know, like a dog returns to its vomit, which yes. my favorite Bible verse one is that we return to, we reenact these, these repetitions, these things we can't get beyond. And in analysis, the idea is that it's that you can short circuit the repetition yeah, and you yeah. can repeat differently. And that's amazing. So you can become born again. Yeah. Very difficult. Pastor Pete's back. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I love it. But, yeah. but in, and it's really interesting you say this, actually. And on the, the desire front, I've been talking to a couple of people about this lately because I realized um, a few months ago that of all the, the great couples I know in my life, I think I, was, I realized that something like eight out of the 10 of them their relationship began in some sort of scandal or controversy or at the very least 
significant inconvenience. Yes. There was, it was never or almost never the person who was perfect on paper, who they'd grown up next to. That was never the person who this desire sparked for. Yes. Instead, it sparked for someone who was 20 years older than them or someone who was the ex of a friend or yes. someone who lived in a different state. There was almost like, like some sort of controversy was the essential ingredient in the beginning of, of what has gone on to become actually quite a wonderful relationship. So it's not as if the impossibility is a bad thing no. necessarily. It can be the rocket fuel that gets the thing going. And this is one of the issues with dating apps is that it's very hard for a dating app to get around is dating apps yes. are designed to make things easy. Yes, to kind of, sure. you know, connect you. So the, yes. the, there are people who were dating apps, you know, they're success stories, but often, like I heard one success story from a friend recently and the success story was they got onto the app and the person was was supposed to have closed their app down. They didn't even realize they were still on it because they were moving away. Sure. And they were like, so And so suddenly they, they were talking and she was like, listen, this is terrible. I, I shouldn't have it on at the moment because I'm about to move countries. That yes, creates yeah. an impossibility, right? That's not to do yes, with the app. It's a failure sure. of the app, right? And the failure. Oh, that's great. And so they ended up, it was great. Because, of course, they yes. start talking and impossibility is like, oh, my goodness. Oh, we could have got on so well. And they kept talking. Well, maybe, you know, give me your number anyway and sure. And then, bam. Because, and so if, if you're developed, the thing about software developers, often they're trying to make things easier. Mm. Sometimes the question is how to make things productively more difficult. And uh, I don't know, yeah. so if I was doing a dating app, I'd have to figure out a way of how do you bring impossibility or difficulty in? <laughs> into yes, <clears throat> maybe it matches you with people totally unsuitable. Yes, exactly. In a different part of the world. That's it, exactly. <laughs> Instead of, you know, I list all the things and all the things I want. It's like this app purposefully says, yep, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Yeah. Right? Oh, you're politically conservative. Here's a progressive. You're politically progressive. Yes. Here is a conservative. And, you know, oh, this is what you really don't like. Bam, and then you're arguing with the person and then you're in love and then you're in bed, right? <laughs> well, because this, and I know to me that the thing that's really interesting thinking about those relationships is that there was something, something like this. The impossibility was what projected the thing going, but then that was just the spark. Then they were actually able to, yes. to do the work of relationship that came after that. So mm. it's almost like there was these two stages. There was this initial, I guess, the, the rocket launch yeah. and then there was the actual orbit that is the relationship. So. Yes. There's this weird thing where the, the desire is necessary to get the gears going. The impossibility is necessary to get the thing going. And then, I don't know, I guess relationships fall over when the desire, that thing has disappeared. It's now the work of a relationship and the desire maybe pops up for somebody else again. Or, yes. Yeah. And that, that's why it's like, how do you create jealousy? For, you know, the two most common is to say jealousy and impossibility. How yes. do you create, depending on what structure you are, have jealousy and impossibility within the relationship. So for example, as well, your partner might work all the time. So you're jealous of their job, like in yeah. a way of going like, but you can kind of almost, and this will, again, we're jumping to drive in a second, but I'll say this as a little uh, portent of where we're going, um, that you can never, like, this is always happening behind your back. Like we always want fulfillment. We always want consciously, things to work out so consciously you'll always want your partner to work maybe less hard and spend more time at home mm. but you can kind of like become a little bit more aware of the enjoyment you get from the annoyance that they do work right yes. and, and you can see that oh actually that generates a certain intensity whenever they come back that is really beautiful and so in yeah. a way you can integrate jealousy 
an impossibility into your relationship. So it's lovely, you know, for someone maybe going out with a person who feels, I never you're impossible i never get to fully know you because you spend so much time with your family and with your friends and with your hobbies and and i feel like like i never fully have you to myself but again as you flow with these ideas you start to smile and go oh i and this is called jouissance by the way jouissance is a technical term in french psychoanalysis but it's it's and in philosophy that means it's kind of a pleasurable suffering uh, it's it's an, uh, a kind of an enjoyment you get from being annoyed. <laughs> it's the kind yeah, of enjoyment right, of suffering. Right. And so you can start to get, you go like, oh, I get my jouissance from impossibility. If you lose that, you'll lose desire. Yeah. You know, suddenly you'll be in a relationship and you'll go, we've lost all of the impossibility and strangely, therefore, you know, the A on the cake, the Seamus' cake isn't there. And without the A on the cake, he doesn't want to eat it. Yeah, you know, and, and yeah. I actually think about um, being a kid. We spoke about Christmas a lot last time I was here, mm. and I think about being a kid and how actually Christmas Day was often a real letdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, yep. the joy of Christmas was in the not having Christmas yet. Yeah. In, in the, the presence, the seeing them as well under the tree, yes. these wrapped presents that have so much possibility. Yes. that can never match up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. And so, so there is this weird thing with desire being caught up in impossibility and. Mm. Um, you know, which is not, I, I think the first time I heard you speak about that, I remember think, thinking at the time, so that's a problem. Desire and impossibility is a problem we have to overcome. But I, I think um, hearing you speak about it now, it's more of a understanding these are the, these are the rules of the game. This is how yes. the thing works. So this is how you play. This is yes. how, you, how you live a life. Because this, this is how neo-religion works, is that it kind of understands this, but it sees it as bad. It mm. sees it as this is, can be overcome. So yes. the right, neo-religious right. promise is... That, oh, you know, oh, you feel jealous? We can get you to not feel jealous. Oh, you always are attracted to what's impossible. We can give you the object that you feel is not there. So in both ways, they're going like, so jealousy is a form of not having because someone else has your partner, right? You feel, oh, they're with me physically, but their mind is with somebody else. So jealousy is a way of maintaining desire for what you have because you're imagining that you don't have it sure. while you have it, right? Yep, Whereas yep. Imp an impossibility is the same. It's like you, the person is there just just on the other continent or going out with somebody else. So they're so they're kind of there in your life and in your mind and in your fantasy, but they're not there. Mm. It's almost the opposite of jealousy, I guess, in the sense of they're well, they're in, they're in your mind but not bodily there. Yeah. Um, but to so the promise of religions is, as I say, wholeness and completeness, getting rid of the lack, getting... So that most, say, neo-religious and religious promises are, we can get rid of object A. We can get rid of this dissatisfying dimension of suffering that's in your life. The Not, ache. Yeah, the ache, whereas, which covers over two things. One is the enjoyment you're getting from the ache, and two, the necessity of the ache. Now, this gets us to the core, which isn't, this topic of this podcast, right? But it gets to the core of my work, which is um, that the promise of wholeness, completeness, and fullness is not just an impossibility. It's not just something that, oh, we can't have. You wouldn't want it. Yeah. It would be the end of everything. Yeah. That there's something about struggle and difficulty and loss that is the source of everything good and everything bad. Right, the source of sure. <clears throat> the source of ethics, you know, where somebody throws himself in front of a bus for somebody else, and it's the source of so much evil. 
is something that is connected to a lack of fulfillment. And that's my main critique of all forms of, from New Age stuff to techno-gnosticism to chemical enlightenment to sexual liberation. I got no problems with, you know, uh, you know, drug culture, uh, you know, polyamory, any of those things. But when they're given as the answer mm. to getting rid of this lack, I think they're theoretically in poverty they're offering a false promise and he, and if they could ever deliver if they could ever cash the checks that they write that would be the end of everything yeah and, and this is the whole in some way self-help field yeah. generally you will, I've, I've been in a lot of airports in the last week and i've seen mm. all the the books you know the self-help books up there which all basically sell this promise if you just understood this strategy if you just implemented these seven steps if if you just invested in this way rather than the way you're currently investing then you would get the the keys to the yes, promised land and you'd, you'd wander in but your work is so central about understanding that the struggle is life yes in a sense which is maybe where we're, we're heading in a moment i don't want to jump mm. too far ahead but but there is such a, a fascinating i guess twist that happens there in the story yeah. and I, I think we kind of know this because i mean everyone's recommending a tv show or movie to you any second day at the moment um mm. And there's no films or TV shows where nothing goes wrong. That would be yeah, a very, oh yeah. no one would watch that. And a lot of people, I don't know if you're like me, but, you know, turn off in the last five minutes of a movie once all of the action's done and then you've got <laughs> this kind of like soppy little, that's the bit you're like, oh, fuck. And in fact, what they do now in movies to keep you going is, offering you a post-credit uh, yeah. antagonism. Yes. You know, because, so you go, I'll oh, better watch to the end because there might be, there basically might be a destabilization. Yeah. Because whenever whenever a movie yeah. ends and you've got five minutes where there's no um, asymmetry or, or um, di distortion, just like, that's the, just turn it off. You know, <laughs> I, I would love to see the stats in, in terms of Netflix, how many people right, turn it off in the right. last five minutes of an action movie because yes. it's not where the interesting stuff is. Yeah, once the, the bad guy's been arrested, yeah. um, you know, or, or once the person's decided they are in love with the protagonist, yeah. once, once the thing's been resolved, the tension's been resolved, mm. the question's been answered, there's nothing really happening anymore. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> so, Absolutely. But, yeah. but yet we're still phantasmically caught up in that idea. Yeah, that's where we, yeah. we all want to get to the last five minutes. And so, and that, and you said it perfectly, self-help is basically designed to get you from A to B. Mm. You're at A, you want to be at B, and it helps you work out how to get to B. Yes. But what it, they generally don't talk about is, one is, usually you do want to get to B. That's why advice doesn't work. Freud was very good on us. He wrote a very small essay, what was it called? Oh, it was called Wild Psychoanalysis, I think. But where he talks about how advice, one of the reasons why in analysis you don't give advice is, but mostly advice is easy. Like, here's a good piece of advice if you want to write a book is write 500 words a day, right? I've heard various people say that. I find that very effective just personally. You write 500 words a day. You don't have to pay for a writing course to get that. You don't have to pay five grand to someone. That's really simple, yeah. but we can't do it. That's the point. Now, in analysis, you start to go, not you can't do it, but what are you enjoying about not doing it? What are you, what enjoyment are you getting from, like what is happening when you get writer's block? So it's more, it's less about giving you advice and more about saying you don't want to get from A to B, right? Because A to B as a writer is, write, say, write 500 words a day. You, you may consciously want it, but you obviously unconsciously don't because you can't just sit down. You're telling me you can't sit down for half an hour and write, so, so the question is why? Mm. And this is grace. Grace is the, the opposite of self-help because grace says you don't go anywhere, but you, you provide a space where 
you fully accept that you're accepted. You experience this radical acceptance, which allows you to look at yourself and allows you to see your disavowed enjoyment. So because you're you're accepting yourself, so you're able to be honest about what you're getting out of this. And and that is actually what allows you to change. So ironically, self-help yeah. is a very conservative thing, as in it conserves, it doesn't move you forward. But whereas grace, ironically, by not having to do anything, just coming to know yourself. So if in terms of like um, putting this in kind of uh, algebraic form, self-help is A to B, uh, grace is A does not equal A. And what that means is you, um, you're self-divided, you're conflicted, you have unconscious drives and desires that are, prevent- even whenever an A does not equal A means a coffee is never just a coffee. Right, that's a yeah. a pair of jeans is never just a pair of jeans. Right. A equals a um, is is the idea that a pair of jeans is a pair of jeans. A does not equal a is like oh it never is it's something else. <clears throat> so yeah, anyway, so that's 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 the key of going like oh self help is always the disavowal or the repression or the promise of getting rid of this self division this conflictual dimension of ourselves and you think right now as we sit here on new year's eve and i think back home in australia they're just about to see in the new year right now as we're speaking and i'm thinking of the new year's resolutions that Mm -hmm. people are coming up with and you know again it's it's all tied into this i'm at a i'm gonna get to b and i think i heard you say once that we live in the space between who we actually are and who we want to be we're always in the tension of 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 being between i guess that's a and b isn't it we never we never make peace with who we are and we never get to who we want to be so each of us are living in this this space in the middle, kind of feeling torn both ways a little bit. And and how many people right now around the world are thinking B is is the person who goes to the gym three times a week. Yeah. B is the person who loses the the twenty kilograms. B is the the person who actually decides to write the novel, as you as you said there. Yeah. There is this sense that it's just it's just there. And when I when I implement these few small New Year's resolutions, I'm gonna finally get to B. Yes, that's but, it, yeah. But we don't, the thing that surprises me, Pete, is that more often we don't have mass awakenings of people going, I feel like I've done this a hundred times mm-hmm. and I never got to be. Yep. What's wrong with the, why does this keep failing? Why yes. does this thing, like, we, we just seem to keep falling prey to it again and again and again. Again, that's, yeah, that is the key question, right? That's brilliant. Why do we keep falling for it? And I think there's a very, kind of, well, very complex, but very simple answer to that. Um, but, and, and, we'll, and, we're, and we're moving that direction. So I'll, I'll recap a tiny bit to get to yes, that. Yes. Um, also, by the way, on that between living between who we are and who we'd like to be, there's a beautiful book by Adam Phillips called, uh, I think it's called In Praise of the Unlived Life. Okay. And it's, it's kind of, again, it's where, it's a book that beautifully talks about how you can enjoy the fact that you never ended up with that person or you didn't get that job or you didn't, that there's something about, that that's inherently what it is to be human. I mean, John Paul Sartre was very good on this, that he says like a waiter who thinks they're a waiter is in bad faith, right? You're not a waiter. You are a waiter, but you're also not. To be human is to be other than your various identities. Yeah, sure, so sure. there's a certain sense in which we always bleed out of them. And there's some way of enjoying that, enjoying that, that displacement enjoying the fact that we are homeless in a sense to be human is to be homeless um yeah yeah. (laughs) and and people i think find this often around retirement or whatever else that this sense of who they've thought they were they lose that sense and realize in in one way they never really fully had it and 
yeah, we, we never really even have the things that we do have along the way. I know. I mean, the, the one of the kind of bad pieces of advice to give to someone who's a workaholic is sometimes you go like, well, you're a workaholic, you're damaging your health, you're not happy, you know, you need to just retire, you need to retire. But not realizing that the reason why they're potentially a workaholic is because that is a terrible solution to something even worse, which is being alone with their thoughts and not yeah, doing something. Yeah. And so that's why so many people die very quickly after retirement. You know, it's that they lose their their purpose, even though it, they hated their job. So it's not about, it's not romanticizing the job. They were potentially alienated, oppressed, underpaid, overworked. That was terrible. But you go from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> You're like, oh, you know, it's like, which do you prefer? It's like, oh, and that's a really difficult place that, yeah. that you're damned if you do and you're damned if, you're, if you don't. Um, yeah. So yeah. So and your your question, which is perfect, is so why do we fall for this again and again? Which is repetition. Why does a dog return to its vomit? Um, and this is where yeah we get to number three, drive. <laughs> so um, demand again, just going through them. Yeah, demand is the instinctive need. I guess is yes. the way to put it. Yeah. And, and you know, at that level, I don't want to throw psychology completely under the bus, but a lot of psychologists, particularly evolutionary psychologists, who apply Darwinian theory. Uh, to the realm of subjectivity. Um, there's always an issue when you apply uh, a theory that developed out of one discipline into another. Now, it's also important to do, that's where a lot of the insights come from, but um, you know, at the level of biology, Darwinianism explains uh, what I would call the antagonism within biological life. But within mathematics, it's not called Darwinianism, it's called Godel's incompleteness theorem. At the level of politics, it's called, you know, democracy, whatever. So different names for different regimes. But um, within evolutionary psychology, I think often they try to understand the human in terms of demand, right? And by that, that means human beings maximize their utility, maximize their pleasure, minimize their pain. So mm. utilitarians. And evolutionary psychologists tend to have very convoluted and I think very weak explanations of why people seem to act against their own self-interest. Sure. Why do people continue to have nightmares when it's there's no real evolutionary reason to freak, freak yourself out? Why do you keep, you know, breaking up with the same type of person, whatever? So why do you desire the people who mightn't be good for you and you can't desire the ones who'd be good for exactly, you? Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Right. So and they'll have very bad so because so at, at the level of demand, there's some I think the poorest form of theory is tries to see human beings as maxim utility maximizers. You also get that in a lot of economic theory. Sure. A lot of economic theory, not all, of, a lot of economic theory works on that human beings are utility maximizers. Then, then there's desire. Desire is a lot more interesting. I think, say, René Girard, we mentioned, is the thinker, one of the great thinkers of desire and how mm -hmm. that functions. And oh, so if we say demand is about the object, demand is about getting an object. And let's say desire is about a lost object. Desire basically is always looking for an object that will bring fulfillment, mm -hmm. but no object does. So it just keeps going from one object to another or to the same object and losing it and then getting it back. Yeah, so yeah. there's a type of lost object and it's, they call it in philosophy and analysis and it's lost object because it's an object that never really existed, but you, f you experience it as lost. You're always looking for that object that's going to work, and it never quite does. Mm. So that's, that's the demand is at the object. Desire is the experience of the lost object, and that's René Girard. One thing about René Girard, I should say, is, again, this is my main critique of some of my friends who are into kind of like a, a more wholeness message, 
is that for René Girard, the original sin, or there is original sin, which is desire. Now, why would you call desire original sin? Well, because desire is original as in you cannot be a subject without desire, right? So sure, it's, sure. it's original to, be, to being a human subject. We, ha we are desirous creatures. And everything, everything human arises out of desire. But it's original sin in a sense because it's original lack. Sin means lack. Right, so original lack, there's an originary lack because you desire what you don't have. Mm. And when you desire the desire of someone else, you're desiring what they don't have because their desire is lack, right? Sure. So love is, is, is making a harbor for the lack in the other and then making a harbor for the lack in you. So there's this really interesting thing yeah, that at the very yeah. core of subjectivity is an originary lack that gets everything going. But, yes. you know, <laughs> but also that's amazing it's amazing and, and also the problem with that is that therefore admiration uh jealousy envy and um uh love are all inextricably human right mm. because jealousy is where you start to desire what the other person has so we loads of us you know you're, you start to desire the partner your friend has, right? Or something like that, you know, or, or the job that they have. Where you don't really desire, somebody you don't really know, doesn't matter, but the person who's closest to you, you start to desire what they desire, that's jealousy. Or envy is where you start to desire not the person, but you desire the type of relationship they have with the person. So you're not jealous of the object, you're jealous of the form that mm. they have. Um, but also uh, mirroring, you also want to become the other person, so you want to usurp. I want to have their job, so there's that, or there's there's rivalry, right? So, yes. so inextricably linked, and again, Girardi and theory is very good on this. Is is that there is an originary lack, which is called desire, the name for originary lack, and that desire means that we are inextricably have to deal with jealousies and envies and rivalries and and all, and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. But also, and there's no way to get rid of it. It's not contingent. A lot of the people, people I can think of, they, they think that's contingent. And, you, and therefore, it's not necessary. It's not ontological. It's not an ontological condition. Right. It's an sure, ontic sure. condition. As, yeah, so, so, um, and then, therefore, you, what we're talking about, you somehow have to rule with this stuff, right? So that's, that's desire. But here's the level above desire. And this is where I think Lacan is at his best. Sure. And it's drive. And if you really want to understand human beings, got to try to get your head around drive. Okay. <laughs> and drive is for loss itself. So if demand is for the object, desire is for the lost object, drive is for loss on its own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. yeah, and this gets us to really to the core of a very interesting dimension, which is not, because, right, if you desire a person, you are still wanting them and you're kind of moving towards them, whatever. In drive, and this is always unconscious, you actually want the, the failure itself. You directly embrace failure. And so that's, that's where, like, it's not that, like a gambler, they want to win. It's, this is the gambler who's addicted to loss itself. Right. What makes them addicted to gambling is not the winning, but the losing. That's drive. Okay. And that's particularly human kind of idea. And, and I mean, we, we might need to do a bit of work on that because mm -hmm. I know at least on, a, on an initial level, a lot of people would say, 
why on earth would you be interested in loss? Why would yes. I want loss? That's the that's the one thing I'm doing all this to try to avoid. Exactly. This is the last thing I want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this comes right to your question. And I think the answer to this question is at the level of consciousness, it that is the logic of utility. So at the level of consciousness, that is always oriented towards, you could say, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, the kind of Benthamite or John Stuart Mill mm. notion. So consciously, that's what's going on. The unconscious is the logic of loss. So you can never consciously embrace loss because this is a logic that is always going on behind your back. The only evidence of it is that you see it in your life. It's amazing. I, I, an example of someone I was talking to recently, they, um, and you'll, you'll know this about, you'll see this a lot of times, but people who keep telling the same stories, right? Sure, they yes. always tell the same stories. Yes. And it's a story of maybe someone who, you know, did them wrong. Yeah. And then this can be 20 years ago, 30 years ago. This can be when they were a child. But, but you know, you're going like not one week is going to go past where they're going to come back and tell that story, right? Or you, you, you're at the dinner table again and you can almost hear them warming up. And yes. you think, here we go again. All yeah, right. here we go again. Going to hear what she did to you. Yes. That's <laughs> right. it. And, and, then, and then when they're in their, let's say, right mind, their conscious mind, they're going, oh, yeah, but I've let it go. I'm going to forget that. That doesn't influence me anymore. But again, round the dinner table, it's like, and you know what? <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, they yeah. killed my cat. And <laughs> <laughs> like and they're carrying this yeah um, yeah yeah and that so that's kind of drive where you keep returning to a fundamental trauma and a trauma here we can define as a fundamental loss a fundamental kind of uh mystery mm. um maybe we should do a little bit of work on on that concept um because <laughs> it's very it's quite complicated as freud's early thought on trauma was that trauma is basically when something happens that you do not have the cognitive tools to symbolize it to signify it right okay. so it's the it basically it's a saturated phenomenon it's a phenomenon in which say something like a sexual assault when you're young mm. that you cannot symbolically process you can't you know you literally can't do anything with it right? it doesn't fit into any category category yes yeah. no yeah. you don't have the language and so yeah. this traumatic thing and so it can be around death and, and and sexual abuse all these things are there's a fundamental event right mm. and that's called the seduction theory but really when freud became freud he noticed some you know something interesting i'll say one example of it is you find that some people have had what we would call traumatic in that sense events, but they didn't traumatize them. And other people who, who were traumatized by events that, that don't fit into that category. Sure, right? sure. So that becomes interesting because you go, okay, so trauma isn't, isn't necessarily tied. It, it's very tied, right? So it's very tied to those things, but not completely tied. Mm. Um, so, so we're going, okay, so there's something we're missing. So whenever a theory doesn't fit the whole field you have to get a more robust theory right that does yeah, yeah. so the one of the ways to to understand this is that what makes something traumatic is that a person is extracting enjoyment from you right and often while doing one of these some an yeah, act yeah, yeah. but also sometimes not but so it's not just the act it's that the other let's say extracting pleasure so an example um 
uh, that I know from a, a guy who clinical example is uh, going home from school and these girls from the girls' school are laughing at him and ridiculing him. Or they're probably not even laughing at him. Who knows, right? But he thinks they're laughing at him mm. and he's really embarrassed about it and he, he walks away. But he's also really turned on by it, right? So he's really attracted to it. Um, and then through analysis, connecting that to um, uh, childhood experiences where his uh, two older sisters would kind of like he would always want to play with them and then they would bring him in and the sisters and their friends would kind of like, uh, you know, put makeup on him or kind of like kind of laugh. And But he couldn't understand that. He was, he knew they were getting pleasure from him, but, mm. but didn't understand what the pleasure was. Right, sure. So this was an echo, which is called, so object A is the the girls laughing at him when he was like 14 years old, right? That's object A, something is desirable within this this laughter, which then connects back to this early experience. The early experience was not so much the, the makeup being put on him, right? But it was the, what is the enjoyment that they're extracting from me, which is evidence, and what is the enjoyment these girls are getting from me by laughing at me, mm. which both is traumatic and terrifying and also, but but enjoyable in some sense. That is one way of understanding trauma. And that's why in a way, that's what drive is. Drive orients itself around a fundamental loss, a fundamental lack, a fundamental question of what does the other want from me? And it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm fascinated. So, yeah. okay. okay, so if we we'll recap again. So mm. demand is the object, desire is the, the lost object. And drive then is the loss itself. <laughs> the loss itself. So, so I, I'm I'm just thinking about you know the biggest losses I guess I've gone mm -hmm. through, and how I would have said you know certainly consciously, but I would have thought in every part of me, I would never have wanted those losses if I could have taken those losses away. That would have been better. Hundred percent. Life yeah. would have been a much better thing. But this theory of Lacan's is that actually some part of me wanted the losses. Yeah. Is that a fair way to put it? Or yeah. Or. The losses that you experienced in your adult life in some way echo the f the losses right, in okay. your in your as an infant sure and sure. then and then the most fundamental dimension because this is the most interesting bit is that there is there is a there is a sense in which subjectivity is inherently a loss. This is here. Yeah. This, this gets me yeah. to the good news, by the way. If, we, if, if neo religion is always promising, because one of the things we're all afraid of is death, right? Yes. We're going to die, right? Um, and, that, and, and so, whenever there's promises of either there's eternal life or technology will give us that, or we'll be able to download ourselves into you know the cloud, or we'll be able to cybernetically enhance mm. our lives, and you know, da, 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 whatever, whatever promise of like, let's get rid of death, right? Um, now, the problem with that, one of the issues is, of course. I say, of course, but is that death is not simply something that is to come. Death is something that's already here. Um, so guilt is an example of a type of death because guilt is I am not who I think I should be. So I'm not. So sure. in other words, there's a there's a lack, right? I am not who I think I am. Meaninglessness is I'm not doing what I want to be doing. There's a certain sense in which lack is not just look ahead of us. Even if we live forever, we'd still have death within us, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But then even more fundamentally, uh, death might be the, the, the thing we've walked through. So very quickly, I'll, I'll do a, a simple example of this and then go to the really core one. Um, a lot of people who have what's called primal agony, uh, which is a Winnicott term, primal agony 
is whenever you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, everything's going to fall apart. You have this just at various times. You'll just think the person's going to leave me. Hmm. Um, everything's going to go wrong, right? There's this primal agony that an apocalyptic event is about to happen. And a lot of people have this. The people who are listening to this will be going, oh shit, that's me. Or, <laughs> or I knew somebody. And yeah, it's not just yeah. a fear and it's not justified fear, although your mind always finds justifications for it. Like whenever you're suffering from pathological jealousy, you will find... You'll, if, you, if you have a truth, you can hide pathology in it. So, for example, if your partner is unfaithful, Lacan said this, is a, if you're pathologically jealous and your partner is unfaithful, you're still pathologically jealous. Yeah. You just happen to be right. <laughs> you know? I've heard you say this about if you hear a noise in the night and, oh, yeah. and there's an intruder in the house. That doesn't mean that, you know, the thousand times beforehand that you thought there was an intruder in the house, that you were right those times Exactly, well. yes. yes. I mean, there's some movies have done this. I think, was it, uh, there's one that... Um, Will Smith, but where you know you might have somebody's paranoid that the FBI are listening to them, and they're yes. paranoid, and then it turns out that the FBI are listening to them, right? But the idea, of course, in the movie sometimes playing this is the person's still pathologically, you know, kind of paranoid. They still yeah, suffer from paranoia. Yeah. They just happen to be right. <laughs> <laughs> and annoyingly, that yes. actually makes it hard to see the paranoia. Yeah, right, right, um, right Hypochondriacs right. are the same. If you're sure, a hypochondriac yeah. and you actually have the thing that you're a hypochondriac about, then you can hide the hypochondriac yeah. pathology in the fact that you really do have cancer, right? Um, yes. So, uh, oh, what, why did we get into that? We're talking about life, Heather already Oh, yes. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you for You're good at this. You've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, there's a, the promise of, oh, you will not die. That's a great promise. We all want to hear it. Oh, yes. The person who goes like primal agony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The good news for someone who has primal agony, right? And this gets us into why turning despair up to 11 is good. That's a good callback right there. Yes, yeah. um, is that the good news for the person who suffers from primal agony is the apocalypse has already happened, right? Often what that is, is actually something horrific, a horrific loss happened in the past but you weren't able to symbolize it. And so it reappears as, as something eschatological, something in the future. You're terrified of a loss happening that's already happened. Huh. Now, right. yeah. okay, I've got so, you. Yes, so that's bad news because you're saying, oh, you know, you know the, the apocalypse isn't coming. It already happened. That sounds like bad news. So but, birth itself is a trauma. Yes, oh, well, yeah, but that's, yes, that's where we're going. Okay. That's exactly Sorry. right. Oh, yeah. Spoiler, spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> just give away the ending. <laughs> you can stop listening now. Okay. Damn, damn. That was my big punchline. Oh, what have I done? You took away my punchline. <laughs> I got excited. It's yeah, like I jumped yeah. in on the joke. Too yeah, early. that's oh. right. Oh, I was like, yeah, if you're, you're a comedian, somebody's throwing out the punchline <laughs> you bastard oh you know what forget any of that happened we'll wind it back okay and wind I'm... it back yes so where's this going pete oh well yeah working it <laughs> um yeah in this one it's like uh what you have to do in a sense through analysis is begin to symbolize the loss so the work is to begin to put together your history of your past which you'll have forgotten that's the thing you don't remember it but your mm. dreams remember it and your fantasies remember it so if you're with a good analyst they know how to help you symbolize the fundamental death that occurred and here's the crazy thing is as you do that you find indirectly you're no longer terrified of losing your partner or whatever. Now, you still might lose them, right? But you're not terrified of it anymore. You're not pathologically mm -hmm. terrified. And this is the weird thing about analysis, because you go in the analysis, this person, and they go, I'm here because I'm terrified of losing X. 
And then the analyst starts to talk about your dreams and you go, I don't want to talk about my dreams. I want to talk about what I do about this panic here. And then they're getting you to reconstruct some and put symbols to some trauma in your past. You're like, why are they doing that? I'm interested in the future. But weirdly, as you put symbols to that past, you, the, you start to dissolve the primal agony. It's a beautiful thing, and it happens without yeah. you even hardly noticing. And as I say, you may stay with that. You're more likely to stay with the person because the more, you're, you, the more you think every day and you say to them, you're going to leave me, you're going to leave me, you're going to leave me, I mean, eventually they might go, I'm going to leave you, right? So, <laughs> you know, you, it probably is healthy, you know, to get rid of the primal agony, but there's no guarantees, but it doesn't matter because without the primal agony, you'll be able to cope with the loss if it right. happens. So that's the first sense is, is that the, the, the trauma that you think is going to happen has sometimes already happened. But the more fundamental one is, um, is that what, and the name for this is castration. Castration is the, is the psychoanalytic name for the fact that to be a subject means that you've, you've all, we've all participated in a fundamental loss. So what unifies us is not a shared belief. But that's what a community is. A community is formed around shared beliefs, shared practices, and shared enemies. Right? That's what a community is. A commune or a communion, I said like the term communion, a communion. I, I'm, I'm thinking of starting to use the word congregation. Um, a congregation, and there's a reason for that, is, is, a, is a group that is gathered together around a shared loss. So a congregation is like AA. Yeah, you know, there's sure, rich and there's sure. poor, conservative there, but they're unified around shared trauma loss, around alcohol. But the, the congregation is the death of God, which is the ultimate lack. But um, the, this is a communion, a group who are gathered together and going like to be human is to be riven with lack, which means to be uh, saturated with desire, which means we have to make peace with lack. That's it. Hmm. And I think we need art and we need music and we need liturgy in order to achieve that. Yeah, that's and, and that's such a because I think so much of the pain perhaps around hope and, and New Year's in, in this instance is you the the implicit belief that some people out there, some others have it sorted. There is a possibility of a life that is transcendent of this lack, this pain, this loss. That some people have the right friends, the right amount of money, the right partner, the right job. That that almost it's almost like it's a it's a hunt, right? And and somewhere out there, the the right life does exist that's free of all of this. Yes, this stuff. And this is the setting free of that notion that that yes. doesn't exist. Nobody woke up today in that world. Yes, and nobody in the year twenty twenty four is going to stumble their way into that, no matter what their resolutions are or aren't. Yes, and I know this is um, a big thing of yours that it's it's not about being set free to be whole and complete. It's about being set free from the pursuit of wholeness and completeness. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's not freedom to be happy, freedom from happiness. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, yeah, which yeah. ironically can make it. But and the logic here is very similar to in that biblical logic where, where the, which has always been this debate within confessional theology is if grace says you just have to accept you're accepted that's it you accept you're accepted you don't have to do anything then does that not mean I'll just do whatever I want right whereas mm -hmm. if, you, if I tell you that you should do x y and z is that not a better way to transform this is the same logic the same question because somebody might listen to this and go Okay, then, if, if lack and struggle and castration are, are exactly part of what it is to be human, and by the way, there's like three or maybe four strategies for avoiding this insight. They're called um, 
repression, um, disavowal, and foreclosure. So neurotics um, basically repress this notion of lack. Uh, perverse subjects disavow it, and psychotic subjects uh, foreclose it. So these are okay. different strategies right. um, uh, for, for, for avoiding a confrontation with this. But um, uh, if, in a way, we have to start to make peace with this, is that not just a justification for the status quo? Is that not just a justification for saying life is a bit rubbish, whatever? Now, it take a lot to get into that, but the first thing I'd want to say is, well, actually, the problem is not, the problem we have today is precisely that we disavow, repress, or um, foreclose lack. The very, pre is that we want to avoid okay. it. And it's that act that then puts the lack onto somebody else. And this is projection, is that, if you cannot tarry with or carry this lack, it becomes destructive. And we live in a society where there is lack, there is alienation, there is frustration, but the problem is not the alienation. The problem is disavowing it. The problem is when you don't make some space for it, it can't have a healthy dimension. Because it's, it's now in both a healthy and unhealthy way, this generates forward momentum. So even Adam Smith, who talked about the invisible hand of the market, yeah. he, he talked about capitalism itself works on a necessary illusion. Like Adam Smith said, like, no, having a load of money does not make you happier. He was like, being poor doesn't make you happy, obviously. Being rich doesn't. As long, if your basic needs are met, you know, that's probably the sweet spot. We have enough where you can do what you want to do, but not too much that people are trying to sue you or steal yes. it or whatever. Right? Sure, sure. And, but he then says, but this illusion that we're led by the news on this illusion of more, more, more is what generates society. It's like what generates skyscrapers. So there's yeah. something comes out of it. And the problem, however, is when it's unleashed, it potentially becomes a runaway train. So one definition of capitalism that Deleuze and Guattari talk about is, in a way, capitalism is unrestrained expansion. So it's it's kind of like, it's not just kind of expansion but it's expansion that has no end so you know Karl Marx famously one of his definitions of capitalism was um MCM prime right so so he said there's CMC and that means commodity money commodity right so C stands for commodity money commodity and that's the idea that I make a commodity so I make a widget and I sell the widget to make money mm. so that I can buy other commodities things sure. like, like yeah. food art whatever right yeah but MCM is where uh, you have money, you invest it to make a widget, a commodity, so that you can have more money, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. So what now you're interested in is not objects, but the abstract increase of capital. I saw this with Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency is a very good example of this, where people who get into it start to get obsessed, not with what the money can buy, but just with the numbers going up. So there's all these funny memes about crypto people dying as millionaires, but they're living, they're homeless, right? They go like, this crypto millionaire, you know? Because yeah, they, right, right. they can't, because no, and the funny thing is, I'm not actually saying this is negative. This is actually part of what it, what drive is, is drive is where we start to enjoy not the thing, but precisely not the thing, it's the increase of capital. Mm. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is, um, oh yeah, so when we can healthily embrace this dimension, that means that we can still have the forward momentum 
that comes from lack, right? You want to be a better cook, right? You want to be a better cook. You want to, so and that's your passion. And so you open up a restaurant and you find better ways to use food and you do. So there's always this lack that's making you better and better. But you also enjoy the fact of that you that you can always be better. You somehow enjoy the impossibility. That's why you people write lots of books. You don't write one book and go, I said it all. As soon as you've written the book, you go, I didn't really say it right. The sure. podcast, the reason yes. why people have podcasts is because every time you do an episode, you don't sit down and go, right, that's it. Podcasts are over. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. answered everything, right? Um, every time I finish podcasts, I go, oh. We spoke about football last time when I was here in sports. <laughs> yes. that you win you win a grand final. You win, you win the, the, the premiership. And it's not like people say, well, the football's over now. Yes, the that's done. The thing keeps going. Yeah. I know. It's yes. brilliant. And, and I suppose the, the dream of someone in sports is, yeah, you want to you wanna kick the ball you know, in the way that, you know, almost ends it. Like I did the best yes. catch. I did the best score. I, whatever, I don't watch sports. So <laughs> you can tell how bad I am at this analogy. I kicked the round thing into the two, between those two pool things, right? <laughs> whatever it is, um, in yeah. the best possible way. But there's something about it that, you know, you never get the best possible way. And, yeah. and it, there's always a possibility of something better, you know? Um, and that's, so... It's not about getting rid of alienation. And this is this gets us to the heart of um, a really interesting debate within politics is the idea, and you see it's within a lot of the left, uh, is the idea which Todd McGowan calls the right-wing deviation of the left, which is the idea that you can, that alienation is contingent. It's not part of the reality of everything. It's not part of numbers. It's not part of physics. It's not, and by the way, I think I probably said this before, but you know, this, no, this antagonism, you find it in biology, it's called evolution. You find it in politics, it's called democracy. You find it in physics, it's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You find it in mathematics, Google's incompleteness theorem. You find it, find it, find it mm. uh, in the unconscious and subjectivity. Like baked in. Baked in. It's, like, it's yeah. like almost like the universe is... A does not equal A. That er the reason why everything exists is precisely because there's a fundamental asymmetry within everything yes. that, that, that generates everything, a complexity. Yeah. And as you flow with that, it becomes healthy. As you disavow it, deny it, and foreclose it, it becomes destructive. Right. So, so the, the agony of a life, in a sense, is much more generated by the things we do to avoid... The, the lack than it is by the lack itself yes the lack itself can be a productive life-giving thing you know for example speaking of the the couple situation earlier you can realize that impossibility has led to desire let that create a loving relationship and then find healthy ways to work with the impossibility and jealousy in the context of a relationship or you can out of fear of the impossibility and the jealousy try to shut them down and that's what causes the pain a hundred percent and the problem is politically you can also be suffering because of other people's denial of the lack. Like, so you're either suffering because you deny yourself. And I think, to be honest, we're all caught up in this ideology to some extent. Mm. But also, this is not just because I'm not a pure, I'm not an idealist here. I'm not saying that you can have this emancipation purely by thinking better, right? Because sure, sure. politically, if you live in a system where loads of people think that having more and more and more and more and more will bring them wholeness and completeness, then if that's your boss, they're going to be paying you less and less and less and less to get it. You know, so mm -hmm. you often suffer because, not because you individually think this, but also because we live in a, a political and economic climate where you suffer. And this again, coming back to René Girard, his reading of atonement, his reading of Christianity in a nutshell, as you know, but is, is partly that, that we 
when we cannot carry our own lack, we put it onto somebody else. So in the crucifixion, you know, you put the lack onto the other. We crucify Christ. So we unify because, oh, we both dislike that person. We put our violence onto them, and that helps us. So basically, society is always under threat from the, the original sin of desire. So societies always eventually will get overrun with jealousies and envies and all of these things. And the way that societies solve that is a shared enemy. And then for René Girard, the whole idea is when you see that the shared enemy is actually a concretization of your disavowed jealousies and lacks and your desires, then there's something salvatory about that. Right? Sure, sure. Now, um, so that's, that's very powerful, but um, that as you realize your own lack, you're less likely to put it onto other people, you're right. less likely to destroy. And so if you have a society, so societally the political activity is to try to help us think of a political and economic system in which we can embrace our lack therefore we're less, less likely to put it onto somebody else and we're less likely to crucify them right yeah sure sure and and so in that sense because it seems to me it's almost like um I know you use the analogy of life being an escape room occasionally. Oh, yeah. And this sense of us, we're all trying, we're, we feel constricted by whatever this human condition thing is and we're trying to find a way out. And what's what I, I love about your work is this sense that the way out isn't by trying to find a way out. It's by making peace with the room. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, going deeper in, exactly. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So stop trying to climb the walls because, and, and that's, again, that's projecting it onto other people. That's all these sorts of things we're doing, trying to get our way out of this thing rather than than finding the life that's within it. I yes. know um, you mentioned before the the vending machine analogy. Oh, uh, yeah. The idea that, that life is a vending machine full of things that promise if you just had this, life would be wonderful. And what we need to do is not get the product, but blow up the vending machine. In yes. A sense. Yes. So how, how do we how do we do that? Because as you mentioned, it's not just a conceptual thing. It's not just we can sit down and go, all right, I'm now going to blow up the vending machine. Done. All right, I'm now yeah. I'm now there. How do you actually do that? Yeah. So concretely, and this brings us back to you know that thing of if you're a writer or you want to be a writer and you're you're not doing the, the work, the question, well, what are you, what are you getting out of that? What are you enjoying? It is at first a strange question. But it is a question that, that actually often leads to something very, very interesting. And mm -hmm. what happens is um, you begin to realize that that is the way in which you're enjoying lack, right? There's something about... So you basically, one of the things to do is to start to try to become aware of your symptoms. What, is, what are my symptoms? What, what, is, what, is, what is it that I keep repeating? Is it a story that I keep telling? Is it an inability to write? Is it an inability to go out or inability to stay in? Is it um, a, a type of relationship dynamic that I keep repeating where I always make myself distant to the person that I love the most? Whatever it is, just the first key, step one is to begin to see your symptoms. That's very hard because mm -hmm. our symptoms are so obvious, mostly to other people, <laughs> that, but not to us, right? We just don't yeah, see them. And it's yeah. very easy to see other people's symptoms and not see our own. Um, but start to become aware of your symptoms, which often, as I say, means asking yourself difficult questions or asking your friends to ask, like, you can, you can say whatever you want in the next five minutes and I won't hate you for it. What are my symptoms? Yeah, um, yeah. Or with a therapist. And then secondly, beginning to go, what am I getting out of that? What is that repeating? What is that echoing? Start to ask yourself that, but also then not so as to overcome it, right? Not to overcome it, but to potentially transform it into something else. So to take the example of the person who can't write, 
the book. I, I had a friend who wanted to write a children's book. She had the story. Uh, she had it all sorted. But like 10 years went past and she'd never written it because she didn't, in her, in her conscious mind, didn't have time. Her conscious mind was she wanted to write it, mm. but she never was able to. I'm mean, going like, this is a 500 word book. Not a 500 words a day, it's a 500 <laughs> word book, right? <laughs> sure. I'm going like, you'd have had the time in the last 10 years to do it. Yeah. So unconsciously, you do want to, right? So first step is start to work that out. And then it's not so as to overcome the lack, but to potentially start going, you know what? I'll never write a perfect children's book. So I'm going to write this one. Suddenly I'm able to write that one because I'm going like, where the writer's block is, is it the next book? Because I mean, I've got another one or one, right? I don't know. So you've kind of, you've still got lack going on, right? But right. the lack is okay. manifesting in a, in a way that is potentially going to cause you less suffering and hopefully more enjoyment. Yeah. So this is the process, coming to know your symptom, coming to see what you're getting out of the symptom, how lack is, is working within it. And with the hope of, of reorienting yourself to the lack, not getting rid of it, but reorienting yourself to it in a way that causes less suffering and brings more pleasure and enjoyment to your life. Mm. Now, the reason why this is a theological enterprise for me is that, and why I do that is for me, the name God can be the signifier for lack, for ontological lack. That's what I kind of mean when I talk about it, is that you have to have a signifier for lack. The whole issue today is we don't have a signifier for lack. We, a very obvious example of this is the debates between theism and atheism, right? Theism, God exists, and atheism, traditional atheism, God doesn't exist, right? Uh, uh, Sam Harris or whatever, I've heard him speak many times over like God doesn't exist, right? Mm. They're like, so we either God exists or God doesn't exist. It's like, well, no, you know, God is that which does not exist, right? <laughs> That's the, you know, so yeah, this is why yeah, atheism yeah. is not negative enough, right? Because there is not a name for an inexistent thing in, in contemporary society. So this is the society of pure positivity, right? You either have something or you don't. There's not a space in which you carve out. So you either speak or you don't speak. But we all know that there's a difference between not speaking and your partner not speaking, right? Yeah. We all know the difference yes, between yes. those two things, right? Um, so yeah. there's, we have... One has an energy to it, a yeah, life to it. It's like to you've it. said before, it's like having no money or having debt. Yes. Both are a lack of something, but one is a lack with an energy to it. Exactly. I mean, this is even CS in quantum mechanics where whenever you create a vacuum, there's a point where the vacuum starts to have more energy. <laughs> a negative, what they call negative energy, quantum fields, yeah, right? Yeah. Quantum, and this is a very bizarre thing in quantum mechanics is there's nothing, right? A vacuum. And then, and then you kind of keep going and then you realize the vacuum is full of energy. That's exactly, it's like, there's not speaking, it's kind of nothing. And then there's not speaking is full of energy, yes. negative energy, full of something. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. and, and to it's an absence with the presence. It's an absence with the before. presence, exactly. Yeah. And funnily enough, even within traditional theology, the signifier God, like Anselm's definition of God at its most basic is God is a signifier that signifies something that cannot be signified. Right? That's, a, yeah. that's the signifier. And in fact, that's the privileged signifier. Like that, you don't have that definition in anything else. So, um, you know, that's why it's called the ontological argument. The, the, the definition of God is, or includes, that it, it defines what it, it cannot define. Yeah, um, so, yeah. in, in a sense, even in the most traditional forms of theology, there was an idea that we need a signifier that signifies something that cannot be signified, that that's important. And I would say in contemporary society, 
we need signifiers for what cannot be signified, i.e. the virtue of laziness. We don't even have a language for that, the virtue of doing nothing. These days, doing nothing has to be integrated into productivity, right? The reason why you should rest well is so you can be more productive, right? The reason, I, I've heard some, someone like Jordan Peterson will say this, is that when he's worked with people who are, say, workaholics, he, he'll go, like, one of the ways that he'll convince a CEO to have more holidays with his partner or whatever is to say, well, that'll also make you a more productive worker, right? This is what, like, Amazon and stuff do. It's like, yeah, create meditation rooms, sleep chambers, whatever you want, right? But the point is, even negativity, even the space of nothing has to be harnessed for positivity, yeah, right? And LA is yeah. hilarious for this. You can't just take drugs. No, you have to take drugs in order to meet God or to be more productive as a writer or to <laughs> be more creative. Like, they can't, they can't even do something traditionally, which is, you know, tune in and tune out or whatever. What was the old 70s phrase? Something you basically take the drug and tune out. You can't. You actually, you know, people take Adderall right, to be more effective. You can't just do something f of pure negativity. And yeah. for me, that's a theological work, is to make sure that within society we have a space in which negativity is uh, signified. Yeah, that's... And this is the Church of the contra uh, Contradiction, which is yes. your, your new... That, that's in process? That's begun? That's in process. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, this is... Because I believe that... This is why I believe in liturgy, is mm -hmm. that it's... Because, you know, we've just talked about how this happens unconsciously. It's like, this loss, you can't ever get on top of it. That's a fiction as well. It's like, mm. this is this this logic of loss operates at the unconscious. And the unconscious... This is why, uh, by the way... The unconscious can never be made conscious. This is a, I always struggle with this as well because sometimes we think that the unconscious can be rendered conscious, right? We can come to know the things that that are motivating us, and that's true. We can kind of come to know a lot, but there's something fundamental in Lacanian analysis that there's something fundamental about the unconscious that can never be rendered conscious. And what it is, in a nutshell, and Todd McGowan is brilliant on this, is um is that the, the, the one thing about the unconscious that can never be brought to consciousness is that it is the logic of loss. And we as conscious beings are always the logic of utility, of maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. That's the logic we're on. We can never, that, we can never consciously embrace the logic of loss, but it's going on within us all the time. In fact, the definition, and my definition of freedom is freedom, and I, I'm a philosopher of freedom, but freedom is not that you have a free choice to choose tea or coffee or whatever. For me, freedom is the name we give for the short circuit that erupts through the incompatibility of these two logics within us. So, mm. so freedom is that there is a spontaneity, a novelty, um, a non-determined dimension of of existence that that kind of erupts out of this fundamental antagonism that we are <laughs> but but that's there and all we can do is try to learn to flow with it but but what can help with this is a weekly gathering through the use of spoken word music and art to help soften your relationship to this wound to create a semi-permeable membrane that allows you to bear the weight of this fundamental mystery, I would say, um, and, and, and not kind of disavow it and put it onto somebody else. And that's the work of the Church of the Contradiction. And I, for me, if, mm. if uh, the Church has a new Reformation, it'll, it'll be that. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's such a 
such a great point, and it's the work you do and have done for a while with Atheism for Lent as well, oh, which yeah. I know is, is coming up again in 2024. Can oh. you share a bit about what, what 2024 is going to be for Atheism for Lent? Well, thank you for that. Very smooth. <laughs> Very smooth. I'm only saying that because I mentioned before we went online, I said, oh yeah, Atheism for Lent's coming up. I'd love to talk about that. And man, you just like... Well, it's where we landed. Whoa, yeah. It's almost grim. like this is something you're really passionate about, Pete, and you get there anyway. Get there anyway, yeah. Well, you're, you're, you got in there. No one will notice that I wanted you to bring this up. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, so Atheism for Lent for me is, is the place where... Um, in this most concrete form, I try to help people get this idea of negativity. So people often think theism and atheism are binary opposites, right? Mm. They fight each other. If you watch on YouTube, there's the theist and the atheist and they're battling out. What I want to show in atheism for Lent, over Lent, every day of Lent, you get a reflection, piece of art, philosophy, music, and then once a week I do a seminar. And you begin to see how theism and atheism are interlinked, how positivity and negativity, the affirmation and the negation are interlinked. So the first week, you know, you'll do the traditional arguments for the existence of God. The second week, you, you look at the deeply, the all the critiques of that, the negation. Then the next week is the negation of that negation, where the mystical approach, which embraces the atheistic approach, and then redoubles it and says that exactly that pure negativity is is the name of God, right? And then the next week is a critique of that. It's a materialist critique. That, and then the next week is a critique of that. And what you end up with at the end is the interweaving, understanding that positivity and negativity are interwoven. And this notion of, as I say, a kind of uh, redoubled negativity, um, it becomes, hopefully comes to the surface. But it's not just an intellectual course, although I don't think there is, and I, I'm saying this as someone, I've been doing this for decades, it's, most, it's not my work. I take the best of everybody else around the world and you get this. So there's not an anthology that brings together these people in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a beautiful intellectual journey where like, you know, you, at the end of it, you'll have had a better course than most universities in theism and atheism. But it's an existential journey as well. It's about walking within these positions. It's about feeling them. And so every week, it's like being tossed to another part of the world. And it's like three and through and around. But with the idea that as you come up to Easter, where this idea of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this, this notion of divine self-abandonment, that that becomes something existentially interwoven into your being mm. and so that's what atheism for lent is and uh yeah so if anybody's interested sign up it's pretty cheap it's free for my patrons and uh for some of them anyway and um yeah i do that every year yeah and it's again it's uh wisdom that has come through again and again i think about Joseph Campbell's line that the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Uh, yeah. And how much that is so much what we're talking about here, mm. that, that actually the, the, the big scary things over to the left, it, the, the damage is done in trying to avoid them yes. rather than looking at them. And yeah. um, I think my, one of my favorite clips of, of yours is uh, some years ago now, you were talking about how humans are haunted houses. Uh, yes. We're all full of these ghosts running around in there and, and either there'll be poltergeists that knock things over, or if we look at them, they can kind of be holy ghosts that guide us. So, so as we enter 2024 then, Pete, and, um, and people are sitting there thinking, you know, there's this sense of hope. I hope this is the year that this happens and then life will be great. I hope that, that, that my life changes in this way and then life will be great. What would your response to that be? Yeah, well, I suppose I would say make all New Year's resolutions 
but realize that the enjoyment is in failing to do them. So it's like, you know, <laughs> and unfortunately you can't then just decide to fail to do them. You have to try to do them. But when you try to do them and you inevitably feel, yeah. enjoy that failure because there's something in that that is interesting and that is telling. So yes. if, if there's anything in this whole uh, conversation that, that I want to bring out is, yeah, come to know your symptoms, come to see that you enjoy failure, even if you don't feel you enjoy it, like as in, it, you may experience it consciously as suffering, but somewhere deep down, you're enjoying it, you're getting something out of it, and coming to know what that enjoyment is, transforms it. Can I give one example? Yes, and then we can finish this. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old joke, um, but the Alanka Sapancic uh, uses um, in a couple of her books, most recently in her book, What is Sex, which is a great book about sexuality and gender. Um, but uh, it's a joke about this guy, this horrible guy comes home from work and uh, he says to his partner, uh, get me a drink, turns on the TV, get me a drink before it starts and the adverts are on TV. Right? Mm. And she gets him a drink. And then he drinks it. And then he says, listen, it's about to start. Get me another drink. And she gets him another drink and he drinks it. He says, it's about to start. It's about to start. Get me another drink before it starts. And then she blows up with him. He says, get your own bloody drink. What do you think I am? Just here to serve you. And then he says, oh, there you go. I told you. It started. Right. So the story is that you think he's, you know, waiting for the game to start, but he's waiting for the argument to start. Right. right. So Sapanchek uses this and says, this is kind of a way to understand what goes on in analysis is if, and this is my, I'm saying myself here, but if I had that dream, if that was a dream where I came home and my partner's there and I'm, I'm wanting to watch football and uh, I ask her to get me a drink, I've been working hard, ask her to get me a drink and she gets me a drink and I asked her to get me something else and then she blew up with me before it started. The, the intervention there would be, oh, so it started, right? So in other words, I think that I do want the argument. He thinks he doesn't want the argument, right? But he's woven into the argument. He actually provoked it. He provoked the very thing that he thinks he's a passive recipient of. Mm -hmm. In the same way, in my dream, I'm like, oh, my partner's shouting at me and I, and I feel really hard done by. And then, you know, the analyst goes, oh, you're not waiting for the game to start. You're waiting for the argument to start. And then goes, so what are you getting out of the argument? So, so suddenly I am... Um, I am uh, confronted with my disavowed enjoyment. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm getting something out of fighting with my partner. I'm not passively a recipient of that. I'm somehow interwoven with it, either directly evoking it or not leaving when it happens, or there's something, there's something I'm getting unconsciously from this. Uh, that insight in and of itself is enough to transform your relationship with that thing. It's enough sometimes to give you a healthier relationship with it. And if it doesn't immediately do that, it can it can be the process that leads to something healthier. Hmm. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. So the things we hope for um, in in their absence in some profound way give us a gift in that in that sense as well. Yes. Yes. So yeah, if you're hoping for for things in 2024. Look forward to the hope of them not happening yeah. Oh, yeah, because, or blowing up. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about hope. I mean, there's C.S. Lewis had an argument. It's an ancient argument uh, for the existence of God, but says that we all have desires, and those desires can be fulfilled. You have a desire for thirst, mm. you know, for, and there's stuff you can drink. For hunger, there's stuff you can You have sexual desires. They can be fulfilled. So this ancient argument is m all of the desires we have can, in theory, be fulfilled. We also have a desire for eternity. 
So the idea is, well, so, you know, that can be fulfilled, potentially, because all the other desires can be fulfilled. Um, but the the answer to that, I think, the Lucchini answer to that is, yes, but there's a particular desire we have for desire, and that's called drive. So drive, if in a nutshell, is the desire for desire itself. Yeah, right, so, right. so we have not just desires that we want fulfilled, we also have a desire for desire itself. And if you got rid of your desire, you'd get rid of, the desire for desire and that would be the end of being human in the same way hope mm. the one of the beautiful things about hope is hope you do want your hopes fulfilled because if your hopes are completely fulfilled you no longer have hope <laughs> so we yes. have we yes. you know if you want to hold on to hope it means that there always has to be something incomplete about it there always has to be something that never happens because if hope was fulfilled you would lose hope just as if desire was fulfilled, you would lose desire. Yeah, and ultimately, sure. we desire desire. And ultimately, which is another word for it, we, we desire hope. So we desire that hope will never be fully fulfilled. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a note to end on. So yeah. <laughs> anytime this year that things don't go the way that, that you're hoping they will, uh, what a great gift that's given you. You can keep hoping. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this is wonderful, man. So good to see you again. Yeah. And here we're going to be partying tonight. You're going to come yes. to my New Year's Eve party yeah, I d- for what, some despair. What's a, yeah, what is a Pete Rollins New Year's Eve party? What am I in for? I don't know. Well, I'm going to have your game sitting night. Uh, so, yeah. What's it, what's it called? Private speaking. Private speaking. Yes. Public, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll see what we'll see what happens it's gonna be a lot of fun well pete it's an honor as always and uh i guess i'll see you here next december it's yes. an annual thing yeah yep. see you this time <laughs> next year <laughs> bye-bye